Reducing Crime is a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Bill Bratton has been Chief of the Los Angeles Police Department, Chief of the New York City Transit Police, Commissioner of the Boston Police Department, and New York City Police Department Commissioner twice. We talk about his career and his new book, The Profession. Hi, this is Jerry Ratcliffe and welcome to Reducing Crime. If, like me, you instantly recognise the television theme that just played, then I pretty much guarantee you have a few grey hairs. Or, like the eponymous hero of the show, an absence of hair. Across five seasons and 118 episodes in the mid-1970s, this slick NYPD homicide detective show garnered a couple of awards and a couple of spin-off movies. If you know the show I'm talking about, then all I'll say is, who loves your baby? By the way, the guest theme for the last episode was the British police drama Juliet Bravo. My guest this month is Bill Bratton. Bill's on a virtual national tour promoting his latest book written with Peter Nobler titled The Profession, a memoir of community, race and the arc of policing in America. As part of the promotional effort, he's appeared on national television, been interviewed on NPR and featured in the New York Times. But with the help of Deb Peel and Bob Wasserman, I managed to convince his poor publicist that this is a legitimate podcast, you know, with production values and a team of people and stuff like that, and not just me chatting with folk while I sit in my bedroom. And bloody hell, it worked. So I got to Zoom for an hour with Bill and talk about some interesting quotes I dug up from his book. Bratton served in the military police in Vietnam before returning home to Boston, where he joined the police department in 1970. He ultimately served as Chief for the Los Angeles Police Department, Chief for the New York City Transit Police, Commissioner of the Boston Police Department, and served two three-year terms as New York City Police Department Commissioner in 1994 and 2014. For the last 20 years, he's been one of the most high-profile police leaders in America. We talk about, well, Bill talks about, comparisons between the US and British policing, moving ideas between police departments, Peel's Principles, Comstat, Accountability, George Kelling, Ivory Tower Academics, Broken Windows, Protests, Defunding, and Depolicing. Oh yeah, and angry white kids with really good teeth. So here's my chat with Bill Bratton. You know, I just hope his publicist Gail gets to keep her job. She seemed really nice. Hey, Jerry, how are you? Bill, how are you, sir? Jerry, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. The technical issue is you've got an idiot at this end who's unable to press one damn button that says unmute. So we're all set now. All right, great. Thanks very much for doing this. Uh, My pleasure. You must be exhausted. I've seen you doing like a hundred places. You are literally the 30th podcast in the last couple of weeks. (laughs) Oh, good grief. That's crazy. I had a a good day yesterday. New York Times will be running what had been on their web, the actual review of the book, which is very, very favorable. It'll be running this Sunday in the New York Times book review. That's fantastic. It's being very well received, uh, very little negative criticism and generating uh, a lot of positive discussion. So very, very pleased with it. It took a long time to put together. My colleague, Peter Nobler, really did a great job putting it all together. We actually met before uh, a couple of times because I've done some work with Chuck Ramsey and Bob Wasserman. Oh, sure. Well, Bob has been a colleague, as I referenced in the book, for 45 years, and Chuck Ramsey, I first met in 1991, uh, both been presidents of PERF and major city chiefs. Chuck is actually working with me currently on two projects that I have in my company, one with Verizon and another one with St. Louis County and city police departments. 
Does Bob know that uh, you've described him as Bugs Bunny at one point in the book, though? Yeah, he said that was the only negative uh, connotation, <laughs> but that was a, well, he had an overbite that uh, was not meant in a demeaning way, but that basically that was uh, how he was described in Boston. Bob is probably the most brilliant person I've met in policing in terms of overall all the issues. Jack Maple was brilliant on crime, George Kelling, uh, wonderful on his uh, many, many theories. But Bob wasn't is, uh, thank God, he still is credible in his understanding of the many of the issues we discussed in the book. Yeah, you describe him as one, and, and I'm quoting from the book here, one of the underappreciated heroes of the evolution of American policing in the past 50 years. You know, obviously I know Bob and it strikes me that people like Bob and Nola Joyce, and there are a whole bunch of these people who have just been beavering away at the background trying to move policing forward. He's purposely sought to stay in the background. He's never been anybody to want to get on the stage. Uh, I've regretted that, uh, and I've told him that many times, that he would be the perfect person to actually write a book because he's been involved in every major initiative in American policing in the last 50 years. So much of what I am in the sense of what I advocate were through opportunities that Bob uh, created. We spent quite a bit of time working together in London, for example, with TFL. Transport for London, yep. Transport for London brought CompStat to that agency, lobbied effectively to get a 1,000 Met offices assigned to uh, TFL to help with traffic and safety patrols. Again, at some point in time, you'll get some acknowledgement. I tried to do that uh, yeah. appropriately in the book. I've actually got a bunch of great quotes that I've pulled out of the book, The Profession, and I'd like to chat about some of those with you. Talk about the job when you started. When you say, when I joined the Boston Police Department, what I found was not a profession. Policing may have been called a profession, but it wasn't one. There was no body of knowledge, few highly educated people were at the top, and by and large, its workforce were considered laborers rather than professionals, grunts, people who had to be controlled. This sounds just like when I joined the Metropolitan Police in London in the mid-1980s. It feels like we've come a long way. The, you could read the, the public rhetoric doesn't suggest as much, but it kind of feels like we've, we've really improved since then. The difference with the Brits is that, uh, and I'm very admiring of uh, the British police services in some respects. I'll be pleased to hear that. No, you had Bram's Hill. You, uh, your senior people are all required to go through that uh, unifying experience. Quick editor's note here, just for folks that don't know. Bram's Hill was a police college and the National Police Staff College for England and Wales for over 50 years until it closed in 2015. The senior officers selected for Bram's Hill were picked from a very competitive pool and they tended to be very well educated to begin with. But you had what a profession needs. You had a body of knowledge, and even if the knowledge is flawed in certain areas. But it keeps growing. It was a think tank. You were always very good in uh, Britain on technology uh, advancement and acquisition. And you always wrestled, as we did in the United States, with race issues as you became less homogeneous as a population and with the influx starting in the 40s and 50s from your, your various Commonwealth nations. But what I found when I went over there is a very educated leadership in the force, but also just what was missing was some of the creativity that we had in the States. I've often said you were five to 10 years behind our experiences, both positive and negative. And I enjoyed my experience. The, uh, uh, the CBE that I got from the Queen was in recognition of trying to draw the two police services. Oh, we all get one of those eventually. I've, I've had two or three of them. <laughs> Well, I finally understand what those initials are. On the back. <laughs> right. That's pretty much it. It's a code. You get inducted into a secret society. You actually know what the hell all those things mean. Well, when, when, I, when I call restaurants when I'm over in London, I, I try to pull my letters around. I don't know if it works or not, but uh, it's, it's nice, nice to have that acknowledgement. I, I make sure to never tell anybody the doctor side, otherwise they expect me to do CPR on some bloke that's dying in the corner of the restaurant. Yeah. So, okay, so mentioning Bram's Hill. 
they've morphed that, and it's having some teething troubles, but it's heading on the right track, into England and Wales now as a kind of national college of policing. Is that something that we need here? I would think that would be wonderful to have here. Starting in the 70s, the U.S. began to invest in training for supervisors, for managers. So I still remember attending at Boston's Logan Airport, a week-long course on managing investigations and another course on uh, uh, supervision. And these were some of the first courses ever offered on a national basis by the national government. And we also had a police foundation that Pat Murphy, former police commissioner in New York, ended up heading up initially a grant, $20 million from the Ford Foundation, which in the 1970s was a huge amount of money. Yeah, it's not exactly chump change today. That would be fantastic, right? First significant investment in American policing to create a profession. Subsequent to that, National Institute of Justice was created that in Perth, the Police Executive Research Forum, which I was one of the first members of, had been active with, been president of twice. I would be very much in favor of something along the line of the FBI Academy tries to do it, but a three-week course, which is really more about the FBI trying to win friends and influence uh, future police chiefs as much as educating them. But it's not of the uh, quality, if you will, of what would be truly a college or university. It doesn't have the caliber? Yeah, well, it's it's probably of uh, the highest caliber uh, in what we have in the United States in the sense of the instructors, et cetera. The reputation of the FBI, it's done at the FBI Academy. But I would be in favor of something that I was fortunately exposed to some of my contemporaries, if you will, a step-by-step move up in the organization, uh, training for supervisors, training for mid-level managers that would then prepare you with your real-life experiences for basically training to be a police chief. My kind of get sense is that we need it for some of the benefits of the FBI National Academy are people get to meet police chiefs from other places because you've had that capacity to work in Los Angeles and in Boston and in New York, but too many people have a tendency to spend their whole life parochially in just one organization. It seems like it becomes harder to, to make reforms happen if you can only ever see that you've done it one way, if that makes some sense. I just had a conversation this morning uh, with a colleague who formerly worked with me in the NYPD talking about the selection process for the next New York City Police Commissioner. And apparently, uh, at least one of the candidates has indicated that he basically wants a minority woman. There's a lot of speculation on one or two candidates in the NYPD. The limitation of those two candidates is they've never really had outside experiences in law enforcement except in the NYPD. And I'm not sure what outside experiences such as the FBI National Academy, SMIP at Perth that they've had that would have increased their exposure to other creative minds around the country. You know, in the British perspective, you can't take on a chief's job as a commissioner or a chief constable unless you've spent some time as a deputy in another force. It's part of the educational experience. Because when you come in from outside, or even if you go away and then come back again, you're often brought in as you've been brought in as a reformer. You brought in from the outside, it's because people often are unhappy with what's going on in, at something internally. And you wrote in the book, among the cops and their union, there's a widespread belief that all police reformers are anti-police. This is wrong-headed. I'm a police reformer and I defy anyone to call me anti-police, which I completely get. It's the, the, Where does this myopic view that we're doing everything perfectly all the time come? Where does this defensive posture come from? It's, it drives me nuts. I'm trying to think of the expression that there's two things that cops hate, the status quo and change. Yeah. <laughs> and in other words, you're never going to satisfy cops. That's just the reality of the business. And, but I constantly strive as the outsider. 
I benefit as an outsider because I come in with experiences elsewhere that help me to identify deficiencies in a new organization, as well as strengths. And as I move around, and I'll use for a prime example, LA and New York, uh, the two leading police departments in America, by none. There's a lot of very good police departments in America, but those are still, despite some of the deficiencies of both agencies, the two leading police forces in America. I, I can't agree with you, because I'm going to have to keep my mouth shut at this point, otherwise I'm going to get run out of Philadelphia, but yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, no, well, Philadelphia has, unfortunately, despite having had John Timoney and Chuck Ramsey, is still, fortunately, a mess. And I was asked to take over the Philadelphia police by Ed Mandel back in the, when the hell was it, that uh, I couldn't take it at the time. I just take it. Must be around the late 90s. Yeah, I had just taken a very lucrative job in the uh, private sector after leaving the NYPD, but I recommended John Timoney. John went in and had a, had a great time there and was one of the great commissioners there, then chucked him in after Washington, D.C. But Philadelphia, uh, it's still dealing with the legacy of Rizzo, fortunately. No, I'm very proud of both LAPD, NYPD, recognize the deficiencies in the strengths. And what I tried to do with LAPD was bring some of the strengths of the NYPD to it. CompStat, for example, uh, better use of data, basically emulating after 9-11 what New York had developed for counterterrorism. And so myself and John Miller created a model after New York, uh, counterterrorism intelligence entity in L.A. Coming to New York from L.A., I brought the uh, use of the firearms investigation division that we had created in L.A., which is still the leading entity in America, equal only by what New York now has to investigate use of force by police. I brought the senior lead officer program concept from L.A. into New York, which is now their NCO program. All of this is described in the book, The Profession. Thirdly, brought back from L.A. their police academy training that we totally revamped the training at the NYPD to emulate much of what L.A. was doing. L.A. still has some of the best training. And this is where Bob Wasserman's creativity comes in. Bob worked with me in every department I've ever gone into. Do you give him advance warning or do you just say, hey, guess where I'm going and you're coming with me? Uh, in some instances, he's already there. He was already there, for example, okay. in uh, New York City Transit Police. And he and Kelly were the ones who recruited me there. He was already there in the NYPD with Lee Brown when I came in in 1994. L.A., he was not there, but so I brought Bob in to help in that transition. I'm just intrigued by the notion that at some point Bob picks up his phone and it's a text message from you saying, how's your Japanese or something well, like that? Well, uh, in some respects, it's kind of like the Batman light in the sky. I look up in the sky, there's bat the Batman light. So basically, that's a message to come on down. <laughs> One of the fun things about the uh, second NYPD experience was that uh, I recognized that was going to be my last significant police experience. And I was able in those three years to, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie The Sting with uh, Robert Redford and Paul. It's, a, it's, it's a, a classic. Classic yep. and the touching the nose. Everybody wanted in on that last sting. It was going to be the swan song. Well, in the NYPD, I think there was a recognition. This was my last adventure. And I was able to literally surround myself with 40 years of incredible talent. There's never been a team of people in one place at one time like I had in 2014 in New York City, except for 1994 in the NYPD first go-round, because then I had the magnificent Jack Maple, John Miller, John Timoney, Louis Annamone. Uh, which is great. But here's where there's kind of a bit of a problem with that, because we've got 18,000 police departments and some of them are in a shocking state and could do with reform and to do with change. And you often need to bring that reform and change in from outside. But 
you had the capacity to bring all of these people with you. You could form a team. How do you do that when you come in as a police commissioner somewhere or as a police chief, and you can maybe bring one person, one or two people, but largely you're coming in and the team that you inherit is the team that you are stuck with. How, how do you make those kinds of changes and reforms? Effectively, that's what happened at the MBTA, the 68-person organization that I took over in 1983. Uh, I was able to bring in Al Sweeney. I was able to bring in as a consultant, Bob Wasserman. But I had to basically work with what I had, which was a force much too small for the responsibilities it had. And this is one of the hallmarks of being a leader. The idea, you're given a set of circumstances but with that set of circumstances, you should not feel yourself totally limited by it. So what I've been able to do is basically identify additional resources that allow me to bring in consultants, additional opportunities that give me access to people who not necessarily came in as paid consultants, but who are willing to lend their expertise. And a hallmark of my time as a leader is always being able to start with the organization in crises, which is what I look for. I don't want to go into something that's being well done. I want to go into something that's a mess. Yeah, you can only at that point you can only fail, right? Or or just maintain somebody else's status quo. Little successes mean so much more. They magnify. But out of crises, I've often said, and it's such a sharp one expression, comes opportunity to meet the challenges that uh, you're going to have to face in an organization crisis. The skill of a police leader, and this is the idea of exposing upcoming police leadership to experiences in the sense of other chiefs who have been there before them, who have had challenges and how they met those challenges. And that's what SMIP, PERS program, offers that in three weeks, these up-and-coming captains, deputy chiefs, are exposed to the Bill Brattons, the Chuck Ramseys, that some of the leading people in the profession, some still in the profession, others like myself on the outside. I don't think anybody's going to claim that you're on the outside, Bill. Well, I'm on the outside, but I'm, I'm like a bee pollinating. I have a, a, a quote at the beginning of the book, John Timoney's uh, favorite quote, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. And those who know police know we don't know our history. Yeah, that's the truth. We don't teach history. I happen to be a history buff, so I know a lot about policing history, your country, here in the U.S., and I'm informed by it. And thank God that I'm a history buff because I was exposed to Sir Robert Peel's nine principles that it is the foundation of what a modern police department should aim to be. Absolutely. The, the primary objective of the police is the prevention of crime. Right. Well, the, the basic mission uh, of police, yep. and I in, indicate those the five most important words in policing, are to prevent crime and disorder, prevent crime and disorder. 70s and 80s, we were responding to crime. In the 90s with community policing, we started focusing on prevention, partnership, problem solving, the three Ps, if you will. And it was the idea also in the 70s and 80s, we gave up focusing on disorder as the streets were becoming more chaotic. Nobody was really recognizing, with the exception of myself and a couple of others, Bob Wasserman and others, that George Kelling, certainly Wilson, that you had to deal with both at the same time. What strikes me about that, that, that piece of history, and I was reading about it more in the book, is that Comstat was a role to bring these things forward. But you, you've just talked for a moment ago about you know, identifying these young leaders. And you talked initially about Comstat being about data, but it was about more than data, because I, I read and I really like this quote. He said, Comstat ultimately became extremely useful, not only for crime-fighting accountability, but also for pinpointing how effectively those leaders were managing the resources in their precinct, their platoon, their squad. 
it's a hell of a mechanism for identifying who, which people have got the the skill sets to actually be the managers. That you know, if you think about a, a precinct captain in in New York or a district captain in Philadelphia, you're the equivalent of a police chief in a moderate sized city. Well, but basically, what I emphasize on decentralization of power in large organizations, the appropriate level is usually the district, the precinct, the division. Yeah. I describe that as basically uh, being a a captain on a very large ship and going down into the engine room to really understand what's moving that ship forward. CompStat initially was a one-sided sheet of paper talking about all the crime issues, but I had them add on the second side a profile sheet. And the profile sheet looked at the captain, his executive officer, and eventually brought into play many of the squad commanders. And it had detailed information about them, how long they've been on the job, et cetera. So that when promotion time came, and I got a list of names, I had over a thousand captains and above in the NYPD, so impossible to effectively know all these people. But in CompStat, I could sit there and just watch and listen and then add on that profile sheet their photograph. So basically, when I went to promotion list, I went to the profile sheet, looked at the crime numbers on one side and on the other side, uh, background of this person. So CompStat was multifaceted uh, in the sense that it was a efficient use of data to drive the organization but it was a tremendously efficient tool to identify who could drive the organization. People wanted you to remember them in Comstat, but ideally for good things. Well, it's, I've never been shy about raising my hand. And that's, that's how I get noticed. And sometimes I'm being accused of being too ambitious. In Boston, ambition was a dirty word. New York, it was something we celebrated. In LA, the whole town is ambitious. Everybody comes to LA to become a movie star or to become a more successful police chief. So I am ambitious, and one of the ways ambitious people get noticed is to get noticed. In all the places that you've been, you've often had to deal with issues around discipline and oversight, and that's come up a lot in conversation recently around policing, especially after the the murder of uh, George Floyd. I don't think we're ever really going to be able to quantify how much damage Derek Chauvin did when he murdered George Floyd and how far it's put American policing Back, and in fact, arguably put policing back in many countries. But this area around discipline and oversight has come up in pretty much everywhere you've been to. If you had carte blanche, you could control the union contract, you could decide whether you were going to have in-house oversight investigations or civilian or external. Is there an ideal discipline system that you could design? No. The reality is that you have more of an opportunity for that in Great Britain with your, what are the 49 agencies uh, over there. You have an inspector and constabulary for all of them. Here in America, with those 18,000 police departments, with the average department, 25 or fewer offices, you've got state laws that interfere with things. You've got city and town ordinances. So even if you were to advocate a best case scenario, it would be inapplicable in the vast majority of American police departments. And it creates phenomenal confusion. Uh, and I'll give you an example case of Derek Chauvin. The fact that the police chief there was able to dismiss those four officers within a few hours, basically, of the murder, everybody applauded him. And then everybody applauded that he testified in the trial. Most police chiefs in America would not have that power. I cannot fire somebody outright in the NYPD or the Los Angeles Police Department. They have to go through a whole disciplinary process that oftentimes is controlled by an outside entity. And so in the case of that particular municipality, he had that power. 
in Los Angeles in New York, you could not go to court because you are the administrative officer who's going to oversee the administrative discipline process. So you could not go into a criminal court prior to the administrative hearing because it would taint your ability to be impartial in that administrative hearing. So there, there really is no one perfect system then. You, you have to try and design the best system given the legal constraints of where you are. Exactly. That's crazy. In LA, I was a chief of police reporting to a board of five commissioners. So all of my disciplinary decisions would be reviewed by them. They could make recommendations that would be counted in the mind. But in, in the final analysis, I was the final determiner. That was the power I had. But yeah. I had significant oversight. In the NYPD, the police commissioner is the final say. We have a civilian complaint review board that's assumed more powers recently. And there's even a move to take the disciplinary powers away from the police commissioner, which would be disastrous. Because as a chief or a commissioner, you have to have that power over your people. Otherwise, you're a toothless tiger if it's controlled by an outside entity. Well, the, the outside entity one's interesting because this is going a really logical direction here, but this is how my mind works is that when you have internal investigations it's, and it's done by police officers, they know the system. They know how people sneak around the system. They know how people cheat the system. They, they know where the flaws are. It's a little bit like George Kelling and his work. What I loved about George was that he would actually get out and go on the ground. You know, when I have a bunch of P when I have PhD students, you know, say, like, well, you're going to work with me. Here's a vest. We're going to go out because you have to see what's really going on. You have to see policing on the street. You have to throw on a vest. You have to go and see that crime victims are not just a dot on the map. There's somebody weeping on a police officer's shoulder because they've lost their life savings, you know, and it was tiny amounts. Thinking of George and that comment about going out and, and walking the walk, walking the talk. Yeah. Uh, he was frequently vilified by the armchair academics who never get out of their uh, offices. The air conditioning is very comfortable in the ivory tower. Yeah, and, and George basically uh, wrote in easily understandable sentences. Uh, anytime I would look at a criminologist's uh, paper that had formulas, X plus Y equals Z, close the book. The average American police chief is not going to get into algorithms, etc. George wrote in wonderfully articulate uh, language based on real life experiences. And he liked cops, which was a big help that he started with the premise of understanding cops and that the majority of them want to do good. He also recognized the many flaws that they had. So that's why George and I got along so well. I'm, I'm a walk around chief. He was a walk around academic. Yeah. And as you say, the armchair academics, and you know, I see a lot of critiques coming from people. I've never heard of them ever stepping outside of the hallowed grounds of a university. It's but the absence of academics who are actually prepared to work with police is a challenge for moving the profession forward. There is now a division of policing with the American Society of Criminology, but it's pretty much on first name terms. All the academics, you know, and, and even fewer of them are like me. I'm an ex-police officer who became an academic and we're on like first name terms. We could sit around one dining room table. I still remember with great delight as police commissioner in New York going up to the American Academy of Criminology meeting in Boston and to take them on as they were attacking CompStat. And the reason they were attacking CompStat was that I had implemented it in every precinct in the city at the same time. They would have preferred that I had a placebo in half the precincts and bought crime in the other half. So I could watch the rising death count in one place and uh, basically only take care of half the city. When I said something in that meeting, that's the flaw uh, where academia is in the sense you think in the verified air of the laboratory. I breathe the smog-filled air of the streets. 
it's one of the reasons I've been attacking a lot of the things that were put into place for the attack because they want to research things for years and years and years. And as a practitioner, you don't have years and years. You, you've got to make split-second decisions that is basically dealing with lives. You're dealing with lives that uh, can be lost uh, in, a, in a moment. Yeah, the, I mean, the average tenure of a police chief is less than four years. It's actually down under three years now. Is it now under three with the current environment, at the last chapter of the book, you talk about the defund movement and essentially the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. It had been building going back to Trayvon Mott, the uh, young man who was killed by that neighborhood watch patrol character. And that was when the Black Lives Matter movement began, the three women who basically started it. Right. It, had, it was slow to get traction. And then Ferguson happened. And then Ferguson, because Eric Garner happened in the same year as Ferguson, but it happened much earlier in the year. It attracted a lot of attention in New York, demonstrations, marches. It had then quieted down. But then when Ferguson happened, it was like uh, a match was thrown that gave uh, BLM uh, a stronger platform to stand on. George Floyd was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. It was a match and there was gasoline everywhere. It was, that's the truth. There was kindling everywhere. I thought we were doing so much better. New York, the fact that we got through Ghana because we had relationships with the African-American community. I had a mayor that had good standing with them, that we were implementing uh, in New York everything that Obama had recommended in this 21st century paper. That's become politicized, but it's a really good report. It's a really interesting and insightful piece of work. A lot of good recommendations, but yeah. it didn't have, uh, if you will, a plan for going forward. It was just, it was like Sir Robert Peel's nine principles. It served as a good foundation, but then it required implementation, and implementation oftentimes requires funding. So it effectively was launched, but then uh, we entered the Trump years, and the last thing he was going to do was fund an Obama initiative. Is the job of a chief, I mean, is it even tenable nowadays? Can anybody survive? Actually, it's becoming increasingly untenable for several reasons. The caliber of some chiefs are just not up to dealing with the incredible challenges of the 21st century. Some of the best are leaving, uh, aging out or just worn out. We still have not got that pendulum back to center. The pendulum is still wiggling over to the far left, the attacks on police, etc. I will say there was one part of your book that actually had me laughing out loud. You were writing about the riots and the disturbances after George Floyd. And then you wrote, when the schism between the black leadership and the anarchists caused both to temporarily quit the field, cops noticed that suddenly most of the marchers could be characterized as angry white kids with really good teeth. And I'm sorry, but that just made me laugh out loud. <laughs> well, actually, I, I purposely put that line in. That line actually was uh, from John Miller, who was at all those demonstrations. And one of the things that we've discussed, police chiefs and those of us that still associate with them, is that we failed to detect that the race issue was still as explosive in the black community because we, in New York, things were going along pretty well. That uh, We had dealt with Ghana, which would normally be as explosive as a George Floyd, but because we had developed the relationships, we got through it. But then where did the anger come from, from all these white people that of the 20 million that were out there demonstrating that uh, probably 80% of them were whites? And if you look at the age of them, that, you know, the old college crowd, the older people with the gray hair, but all these young kids, 19, 20, 21, 22, part of it was that they had only lived in the 21st century. And the 21st century was a relatively safe period in America, except in some inner cities. They had no memory of the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. And so that anger toward the police, what did the police ever do to them? And I think it's a reflective of the challenge, frustration for 
so many professions in the 21st century is social media. All these kids live on those devices. The ability to attract a flash mob in an instant and the ability to gin up anger. And this is something that Chiefs are wrestling with. How do we effectively deal with the 21st century? And that goes back to my point about the myriad of challenges that police chiefs uh, have to face, and many of them are not prepared to face them. It seems like the last chapter is especially you're shooting to provide a roadmap as a way out, because I think police chiefs right now need it. I, I think there's a real struggle to figure out how do we get out of where we are? How do we appease some, or at least temper some of the angry white kids with really good teeth? I'm sorry, I'm stealing that and I'm going to keep using it. How do we move forward? It is a memoir. Random House wanted, uh, through my eyes, experiences a history of policing over the last 50 years, the arc, if you will. It's also uh, a lot of wonderful stories of events and people. And it's also a tutorial. A tutorial in the sense, what I've tried to provide is, through my perspective, definitions of the contemporary language of the 21st century. Stop, question, and frisk. What is it in reality versus the hype? Defund the police. What is that? What is its real potential impact? One of the things that you say about it is that you can't take the money from the cops and throw it to other failed agencies that don't know what they're doing. And this, this phrase I really like, you can't defund an institution to punish it and think that this action is going to make it better. And that's still what some of these cities and politicians are trying to do. Also, the idea of, for example, the uh, hot button issue that's holding up the George Floyd uh, bill in Congress, qualified immunity. I would be willing to bet you ask nine out of 10 politicians who are advocating to do away with it or change it to define it. They couldn't tell you anything about what they're actually advocating for. And as you say in the book, there's certainly no call to advocate that we should be taking away complete immunity that seems to be we give it to judges and prosecutors. And politicians. Yeah. Can you can you sue a congressman? They basically have absolute immunity for bills they pass, actions that they take. No, so qualified immunity really comes down to two terms. It's the idea of lawful, that the officer is engaged in a lawful police action, and that his actions were reasonable. The courts, however, over time have made it so restricted that you have to be able to show a similar case in the same jurisdiction. Right. I'm all for criminal justice reform. It's needed. Qualified immunity can be reformed, but take it away and the disincentivization of new people to come into the business and the encouragement of existing people to flee the business, it's going to be a potentially significant negative impact on the police profession. It's striking that balance though, isn't it? It's striking that balance between having some degree of oversight, but also understanding that people have got to make, in many cases, split second decisions and human beings sometimes make mistakes. And I don't think we're in a world in 2021 where there is much tolerance for honest and genuine mistakes. Well, the case in point is going back to the smartphones. The Eric Garner case is a prime example. That snippet of that 10 second takedown. New York won one night, I counted it in the space of a minute. They played that snippet six times in the space of a minute. That, so it sinks into the public mind, but the Ghana matter spread over a number of minutes that the coffers is talking to him for a period of time. Right at the, the back end of the book, page 472, something like that. It's an interesting way to finish because I'm wondering what it's like to look back on a career that's lasted 50 years. To write, sadly, at some point I came to feel that despite the efforts of so many highly talented, wise, sensitive and positive thinkers with whom I've worked, all of our gains have been erased. 
I fight that uncomfortable thought every day and I refuse to allow it to take hold. Is that, have, is that where we are? Let me give you the example. I often said a little earlier in our discussion about going to this point about 50 year arc, we're kind of back where we started. In the 70s, George Kelling uh, writes and talks eloquently about this, and I use his comments and break it down. It's, it's a shame that so many people don't have the opportunity to see him speak because he was a fantastic speaker who give talk about victims and just the support and the need to support victims in the worst hit communities. He was a fantastic speaker with real passion. In some respects, the frustration I uh, have at the back of that book echoes some of his frustration. And his great frustration was the effort on the part of many of the anti-Kellings to equate broken windows with racist policing. Broken windows is all about community policing. It's true community policing. Because what are police responding to when they're dealing with 311 calls to deal with the prostitute in the corner, the gang acting up in the park? The dice game that attracts shootings. All the stuff that makes quality of life in the neighborhoods creates fear, where all that's going on now down in Times Square with the intimidation of tourists, etc. George talks about in the 70s that three things happened that are basically being repeated right now. We deinstitutionalized in the 1970s, well intended, as government policies often are, to let the mentally ill out of the institutions, get them in the neighborhood treatment centers, get them back into the homes with self-medication. Hundreds of thousands around the country, uh, well intended, but what did we unintentionally create? Most of those self-treatment uh, centers in the neighborhoods went funded. Many of those poor souls ended up on our streets. And we created what was called 50 years later, the homeless problem, which is now exploding. Secondly, we also decriminalizing a lot of activities in our public streets. Public drunkenness now no longer was a crime. It was an illness. Efforts to deal with loitering, uh, all types of behavioral issues were now effectively decriminalized, the police were told, don't pay attention to that. You have more important things to focus on, more serious crimes. So don't pay attention to the graffiti. Don't bother about those uh, dice games. Don't bother about the drinking in public. So we were decriminalizing a lot of that aberrant behavior. So we got the compounding of the emotionally ill on the streets, uh, decriminalizing of a lot of things that went on in the streets, and we were adding uh, also as the drug problem was starting to experience many more drug addicted people onto the streets. And thirdly, we were depolicing. Many police departments shrunk during the 1970s. That burgeoning of the disorder problem disproportionately affected the communities that weren't able to police themselves. And that's the part that I think is lost on how people interpret George's work. Because he was really about he was really about trying to do something for the disorder problem in the communities that didn't have the He understood capacity. how to do it because the depolicing also was the idea we no longer had cops walking the beat. I started walking in people. So did I. Yeah. And then in seventy seven, seventy eight we got air conditioned cars, we could roll the windows up and we got even more isolated. I don't think we have those in Britain yet. Yeah. Yeah. So depolicing was literally fewer police, but uh, police policing differently in cars and being consumed with nine one one calls. The majority of those 911 calls were about the increasing disorder on the streets, which police and managers, administrators kind of pushed off to the side. We have to focus on serious crime. So that's 1970s. And we saw the results of that in the 80s, leading to 1990, the worst crime and disorder year ever. What is going on in 2021 that has exploded in the last year? We have deinstitutionalization of what? Our prisons and jails. 
We are pushing people out and similar to 1970 with the mentally ill, there were no facilities for them. So deinstitutionalization is happening once again. Depolicing, defund the police. We are cutting budgets of police departments around the country. In the 1990s, with the crime bill of 1994, we had 800,000 police. The latest headcount is 670,000 and declining. So we have fewer police to deal with the deinstitutionalization issues. But we also have the decriminalization. So many of the laws that were left for police to work with, prosecutors are no longer willing to prosecute. Legislators are now more intent on basically passing laws that penalize the police than the criminals. So deja vu all over again. Back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, I had the answers. I'm not sure that I finally had been given the opportunity in 2021 to get back on the stage that I could basically have a hit on Broadway because I just don't think we have the necessary orchestration to put on a hit. We don't have the answers that we had in the 90s. And that's that's what worries me at the moment. Which is why you wrote, uh, all of our gains have been erased. If you think of it, everything that I think was beneficial, community policing is being attacked as racist. Comstat is being attacked as racist. Stop question and frisk is being attacked as racist. We have become so racially conscious that we're losing sight of the people that benefited most from these gains were the minority population. How are you going to solve a problem when it's kind of like Congress of the United States? They can't get together on anything. Well, on the issue of race, we're having difficulty getting together on the central issue in America today. And that's some of what I speak to in the book. i got to say, 50 years, an incredible commitment, a life dedicated to public service. To be back where we started, how does that feel? Uh, isn't that great? Because everywhere you look, there's a problem to be fixed. That, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> really? You're going to finish on a glass half full? This is an opportunity situation? Somebody who looks for uh, crises to uh, basically accelerate change. Uh, that crisis is building. At some point in time, it'll accelerate change. I just hope that some of my contemporaries uh, uh, basically have some of the answers I believe we had in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and particularly going into the 21st century. We've been there before. We've succeeded before. We'll be there again, and uh, hopefully we'll succeed again. i got to tell you, uh, I, I don't normally fluff people this much, but uh, as, a, as a kind of history of 50 years of policing from somebody who's made those kind of commitments, I read the book in three days. Uh, it's a fantastic read. It's the Profession. Uh, Bill, thank you ever so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, good luck with the podcast, okay? All the best. Cheers, Bill. Take care. That was episode 37 of Reducing Crime, recorded online in July 2021. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore Reducing Crime. When they become available, I also announce new three-day Police Commanders Crime Reduction courses there. The transcript of this and every episode can be found at reducingcrime.com slash podcast. If you are a college instructor planning a class or two around any of the podcasts, DM me at jerry underscore Ratcliffe for a free spreadsheet of multiple choice questions. Be safe and best of luck.